Please just introduce yourself. Right. I'm uh, Wilfred Riley. I'm an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, and I'm the author of the books uh, Hate Crime Hoax, Taboo, and the upcoming Lies My Liberal Teacher Told Me. Uh, good, to, good to be on the pod. Thank you for being on the pod. It's great to have you. I'm a fan of your work. I've been following you for some time. I wanted to start with your, your doctoral dissertation, which I found fascinating, the effect of racial status and other core characteristics on collective self-esteem. I was reading through it a couple of nights ago, and I found you have a very lovely note referencing your mother, Jean Marie Ward, and her influence on your thinking. Tell me about the impact she had on your approach to thinking or analysis. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I, I love my mom. I dedicated my first book to my mother, uh, next one to my fiance. So I mean, fairly, fairly conventional and proper. But uh, my mom actually definitely shaped my perspective on the world. My mom was a Chicago ward, which is, I mean, an upper, upper class black family, I would say, at least from my experience with them. And she, I always got the impression, had some kind of clash with the family fairly early on in life. And at the time I was born and lived was an inner city school teacher. So she taught at East Aurora High, which is where I ended up going, big working class suburb outside of Chicago. She taught, as I recall, in CPS at Chicago Public Schools for a while. And I basically lived in the areas where she taught, which was an, an interesting experience. So kind of a mix of preppy and hood in terms of the uh, the family and friend background there. But I mean, her actual perspective on knowledge was very useful. I mean, the house was full of books from, you know, Pat Buchanan and further right over to like Hockey Mod Booty and Louis Farrakhan, Third World Press was around at this time. So, I mean, the idea that you can basically use logic to go out and pursue knowledge in you know, whatever direction that might exist was something that definitely was was enhanced by my mom, which is you know, very proved to be very useful to me. I mean, I've been an academic for, you know, the past 10, 15 years. I mean, if you count adjuncting and that kind of thing, and that probably wouldn't have been possible without mom. Yeah, I wanted to ask that as similar, uh, sort of academically inspired by my mother. And so when I saw that, that resonated. Your dissertation looked at how minority status affects the valuation of in-group identities in America, testing the reflected appraisals tradition against the linked fate theory. What is the reflected appraisals tradition and, and what is the linked fate theory? So this is actually something that I, I kind of thought would make a bigger splash than it did. I was maybe a couple of years behind the academic curve, but I this is still, this became my first book. I still like this project. In the late 1990s, there was a guy named Andrew Hacker who produced what for a while was the most quoted estimate in social science. And what Dr. Hacker did, and Dr. Hacker is a political scientist at Queens University, solid scholar from all I've ever heard. But at one point, he almost casually asked a group of students. And again, the impression I get is these are like Irish and Italian guys in Queens. So I don't know how much value the initial estimate had. But he asked a group of students, no, no offense to him, but he asked a group of students how much they would have to be paid to become Black. And the average answer was $50 million. And this became extraordinarily widely cited. I mean, it appears in Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, famous paper, Whiteness is Property. And the idea is that there's such an advantage to being white, even by this point, 1990s, affirmative action in force for 25 years, that white people have this, this racist or just this value-based estimation of what being white is worth. And it's in the tens of millions. 
And the corresponding assumption that everyone kind of made is that black people wouldn't demand anything like this figure and might pay to be white. I mean, again, whiteness is property, white privilege, value of whiteness theory, all this stuff was was very prevalent at the start of what we now call wokeness. And I started questioning early on how useful this figure was. I mean, leaving aside who actually took the surveys and so on, or just responded to the question in class, you know, I most of my friends at this time were probably middle to upper middle class, black, Asian American, et cetera, guys. I would have been at Southern Illinois University at the time, just out of the University of Illinois. And I remember just a bunch of us goofing around playing ball at the gym. And I asked this question, how much would you have to be paid to be white? And the figure that people threw out was pretty close to Hacker's figure. And people were just making semi-friendly ethnic jokes. Like, would I still be able to dance? You know, are there any, let's say, physical changes? Would I have to wear a polo shirts, which were kind of in style at the time? Would I have to change who I am? And it struck me that there was very likely something going on besides uniquely white racism with all of this. That almost all healthy people tend to value who they are in racial sexual, if you go into Europe, the American South, even social class terms. And this had not actually been measured by the uh, hacker question. So for the dissertation, actually, I, I set out to measure it. And what I what I saw looking through the literature is that there were kind of two theories here. One argument was that minorities would be expected to have lower levels of self-esteem and self-valuation then members of majority groups, uh, and this I call this, and it's been called before, reflected appraisals theory, and that hackers' estimates just reflected that. So minorities, whites would demand tens of million dollars, tens of millions of dollars to change toward toward the brown, but Hispanics, blacks, and all that would be very likely to wish to become white. Um, and the other theory is what you call linked fate, which is the idea that people generally like their group, they see where they're going to go in life is tied into some you know, small but significant extent with the, the fortunes of their group. And they tend to kind of back the home team. Most people aren't bigots. But if you ask whites, do you prefer whites to blacks? They'll say yes by five points. If you ask blacks, do you prefer blacks to whites? They'll say yes by eight points, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there are these very two, there are these two very specific models that almost a classic empirical test. Do you use linear regression or logistic regression or whatnot? You compare these two theories, which, by the way, is something that almost never happens in the critical sector without going into like a 10 minute long rant. I wasn't just testing one or giving my lived experiences or something. I mean, my uh, quantitative mentor, Steve Schulman, was was pretty good with this kind of stuff. So, I mean, we were very much in Stata. My final data set was 3,000 people or something like that. We actually did one that wasn't quite good enough for a standard. So we then did another one that was just as large and found the same results in both. But essentially what happened is that I looked at differences in core identity valuation. And by the end, I had four or five populations. I had whites versus POC, which in Southern Illinois at this time mostly meant blacks, a few Asian graduate students. I had men versus women. I had gays and bisexual people. And this is the mid OOs by this point. So it's very large bisexual and for that matter, gay contingent on most campuses. And I had Christians versus members of religious minorities. And it varied a bit across groups, but in general, members of minority groups valued their identity more than members of the equivalent majority group. So there was that natural sense of identification we all feel, and then a little bit of kind of bad kid in the classroom, like you won't tell me what I am about it. So women were far more critical of men than men were of women. So there's a qualitative portion on the survey, and women said that they didn't want to be like 
cruel and brutal and bad in bed and like very detailed why they didn't want to be men. Men were just like, nah, be a little smaller. But the same thing with blacks and whites. I mean, blacks said, you know, we've now achieved uh, almost performance equality despite a history of oppression. And some people gave the pro-black stereotypes. I think we're better athletes, lovers. No, I like whites fairly well. It's an integrated Southern Illinois community, but no, I wouldn't want to be white. So in essence, the, this entire claim of kind of the value, and again, I, I think this is a this pretty valuable project, like the entire question of like the value of whiteness, white privilege, whiteness as property was kind of disproven by this. I mean, we took this large end data set of thousands of people and found that the, the opposite was the case, that members of minority groups were as racially identified as racist, if you want to use that label, or a bit more so than whites. Self-esteem was higher than it was for Caucasians. So some of that, none of it surprised me as just a normal citizen, but uh, it was it was considered pretty shocking in the discipline. Just again, though, it's a graduate dissertation. Not that many people have probably read it. I you know, sell a couple books every every month. But I, I, I enjoyed doing the project, and it kind of guided some uh, some future quantitative projects that I did. Well, that's fascinating. I wonder what uh, what do you think the results would be if you were to repeat that experiment today? Do you think that it would be more skewed in a direction that it wasn't at the time? Yeah, I, I think minorities would become more racist if you want to use that term at all, and whites would stay about the same. I mean, you might see a backlash effect among white conservatives or dissidents today. Hmm. But no, I mean, this is what every study has shown. I mean, again, mine was specifically targeted at the hacker test at this kind of famous experiment. I think did a good job with that. But I mean, this has been done before. I mean, there are, there are what are called heat scales or hotness scales, where you look at how people feel about members of different groups and whites, both because there's so many different kinds of whites from urban brown-skinned Italian-Americans over to Norsky farmers in, um, you know, New Scandahuvia and Minnesota and so on. And because whites, I think, have been a little bit trained not to express certain dark truths. What you normally see on these scales is that whites rate everyone about equally. So what do you think of blacks? You know, 65. Whites, 68. You know, Hispanics, 64. And so on down the line. Blacks tend to rate African-Americans extremely highly. Like the scores have gone up to 90. And they don't hate whites, but they or we tend to put them between, say, 50 and 60. So, I mean, there's a far larger gap in terms of racial bias among blacks than there is among whites. Hispanics are pretty non-racist. I forget what they got. But Asians, again, similar to Blacks, they value East Asians very highly. Um, they tend to value uh, African-Americans and Hispanics a little more than whites, which which surprised me. But it's probably due to that woke post-college Asian contingent. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like whites were actually the least racist group in every variant on this that I've seen. And I, I think a, a redo of my project or another really large end project would produce pretty much the same results, that whites would be among the least racist groups, if not the least racist group. We could speculate that this is the result of woke progressive influence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a casual friend of mine, Jonah Goldberg, is, or Zach Goldberg, sorry, I keep confusing these two guys. Jonah Goldberg is the uh, like center-right commentary author. It's on, but um, the Atlantic. But uh, Zach Goldberg, a PhD student just coming out, his dissertation and first book is on the quote-unquote Great Awakening. He's actually measured this and found that what you see within the white community is this weird split between normalcy and self-hate. Hmm. So, like I said, for most healthy people, there's a tendency to like your countrymen quite well, but to value yourself, say, five to 12 points more. I mean, that's just it's a well-known fact in psych and political science. So, and the exact figures may vary, but the trend doesn't. 
so i mean for example when he looked at blacks he actually found that we were a little unhealthy black people valued uh other blacks by 15 points over a neutral group which is like caucasian hispanics or something um you know hispanics valued other hispanics by 12 like right in the healthy zone asians are like 10.94 but when you got to whites you had a weird split so conservative whites i think valued whites by 11.86 points more than uh the the comparator group which is perfectly normal but like they have high, blacks right? that, i'm sorry if i'm just if i heard you correctly the first time that, that's a tiny bit high than what you would consider healthy yeah it's it's like the black score i mean like it's so it, you get verge into the very low end of racialism but i mean it's just like you none of these groups hated the other groups interestingly enough i mean both blacks and conservative whites have played a lot of ball been in a lot of integrated settings so you'd have like blacks 70 whites 81 okay what you saw with um white liberals that was genuinely bizarre white liberals valued whites by 13 to 14 points less and again this is zach goldberg i think zach goldberg 20 uh, 2022 um then the comparator group or than any other group as i recall they also didn't like people that much so it would be like 60 60 60 60 and then whites like 40 i mean so it was it was just a very and someone might correct me on that in the comments but it, it was just a very unusual pattern where right. the scores for everyone were normal to low, and then the score for your group was normal to low minus 14 points. Like, as a social scientist, it was it was striking. So, I mean, that that's what you have within the white community. And that's probably one reason. Actually, I just brought this up. It's a good point. That's probably one reason you get such neutral white scores. Like, you have one group that's like a normal plus 12. Then you have another group that's like a minus 13. So that's going to bring you to perfect neutrality, depending mm -hmm. on the size of the groups. So it could e that's easily how you could get 60 for everybody. Whereas conservative whites might be, again, you know, pretty much the black thing, like 70 and 82. So the, the black group wasn't higher than the others in terms of like, what would you call it, self-love or narcissism? But the white group was definitely, especially when you would target out those liberals, but it was there was more self-hate, as it were. Yeah, the so black people, I, I think that the country, people keep saying we need to have an honest conversation about race. And what that generally ends up meaning is you need to listen to me, a minority activist, shout at you. So, I mean, I understand why the average white guy that I would play ball with or go fishing with does not want to have that conversation. But I mean, to some extent, we actually do need an honest conversation about race. What are what are the pathologies of each group? Uh, overdoses, which are rural, white-driven, skyrocketed past 100,000 last year. 100,000. But at the same time, murders, which are urban black-driven, are 20,000 plus. Like, it would be fair to sit everyone down in a room and say, like, what is each group? What is each region? What are state governors going to do about these massive problems? Like, I would want to have that honest conversation about right. race. But one element of that with the black delegation, to get uh, Chappelle's-ish about this, is that there is an issue with racism in the black community or racialism, racial narcissism, whatever you want to call it. So the black scores, we're still solid countrymen. There was nothing crazy. But the black scores are the highest uh, in these categories. Like on every heat scale, if you look at how much people value their race, the group that values their race the most, just ahead of Asian male, is going to be black. So not inherently bad, but if, if we want to very much focus on this idea of, you know, we're all Americans, we're really frowning on any level of racial identification, so on. I mean, that, that would have to come up in the conversation.
Yeah, that's the most identified group by far. Well, that's what the data says. But what do you have any personal thoughts on the idea of maybe it takes a little bit of overcorrection to get back on the path? Or as people often like to use the analogy, you know, if you swerve off the road, you don't correct for that by driving straight from that point forward. You have to kind of overcorrect. So maybe there is a little bit of self-love within certain communities that goes beyond what is normal or healthy. But maybe that's what's needed for a time. This is an argument that I've heard come up again and again. What do you think about that? Well, I think that'd be a very valid argument if we were still dealing with, say, slavery. Like, I mean, so what are you going to do to get free? How are you going to get the revolutionary bands together? I mean, who's going to have the balls to go get in contact with the union men? I mean, even if you're talking about segregation, if you're talking about more real problems we've experienced in the modern era, I mean, how do you get the sort of group unity that's going to make every family, despite working class circumstances, give to the NAACP, fund the court cases? I mean, so in that context, what, again, is, is often called linked fate, that strong sense of group identification makes sense. The problem here is that I there's there's an obvious reality that no one ever talks about. That is that there's not a lot of racism or racial conflict, certainly at the middle class level and above in the United States right now. I mean, we desegregated in 1950. Well, there's some backlashing from all sides now after the 10 years of BLM and so on. But I mean, in general, thinking of a year like 2015, desegregation occurred in the one region that was still segregated, at least by law, in 1954. Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. Affirmative action, which gives a massive pro-minority boost into, I mean, every competitive university, most Fortune 500 jobs, dates to 1967, the Philadelphia plan. So, I mean, the idea that 50 years later, 58 years later, there's still a need for really enhanced black identification that often leads to hostility against whites or immigrants. I mean, you'd kind of have to convince me of that. It, it seems more like an unnecessary legacy of the past. And a final comment on that, like in maybe the 1970s, and you know, remember the Titans era, like one of the things that started being taught to everyone is, okay, we all fought each other, whites in particular, did terrible things, bloody history. But now we're going to really focus on colorblindness. Like we've all got to live together. We still have a substantial amount of immigration. So the idea is going to be that we're going to judge people literally based on the content of their character. We're not going to discuss race much at all. We're going to focus on things that unify people, military, sport, this sort of thing. The National Bicentennial was around this time. And my impression is that kind of white Americans in general did this. So if you look at levels of racial identification among whites, as I've said, they're, they're fairly low compared to the other groups. But also you can look at specific things like, do you object to interracial marriage is a question that's asked frequently by Gallup. And in the time I've been tracking that from the 90, late 90s to now, the, the percentage of people that answered yes has dropped from like 57% among whites down to like 4%. So I, I think the average white person doesn't really identify as a white guy. And this accounts for a lot of patterns you see in society, like from school, high school to county jail, a lot of the quote unquote coolest people with a fairly diverse group of friends happen to be white. You also see that because they're, and this is, this is just indisputably true. I mean, living in urban Kentucky, many of the athletes, the quarterback, this kind of thing. But you also see that many of the people who take the most abuse in these environments, these integrated modern environments, happen to be Caucasian. And to me, a lot of this is because there's not really a white tribal sense. There, most whites seem to have no strong identification with someone who is, say, poor or a victim of bullying just because they're white, which, if anything, is good. But it's just it's very obvious. If you've ever been in an integrated environment, it's like incredibly obvious.
-hmm. Black and Hispanic guys will be brutal to you within the group, but in general do have that sense of identification. So it would it would be hard to imagine four white guys in Pepe the Frog t-shirts beating up a black guy in a public area without some other black guys intervening. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, but in, in reverse, since maybe the 80s, maybe the early 90s, that just hasn't been true. So whites in general said, okay, I think we are comfortable being general Americans. And you see a move away from, kind of last line, I'm a long talker, but you see a move away from even those old urban identities like Italian, Italian-American. Mm -hmm. I'm just white. I'm, a, I'm more, more than that, I'm an American. Uh, I guess my point is I didn't see that with other groups. Like, I don't think black people in general would value being American more than being black. They would give the sort of answers that whites would have given in the 60s. I can't remember his name, but there's a comedian who has a, a joke about that, and he's comparing the ways in which he thinks that if you were to jump a black guy, other black guys would jump in, but if you were to jump a white, oh, yeah. other white guys would be like, you know, screw that guy and keep walking. Like, they're not, <laughs> they don't feel that sense of connection. And it's a funny joke because there's truth in it. But there's a counterpoint here that I hear sometimes, which is, you know, well, the reason for this is because the groups that don't identify as white, they have been uh, brought into the mainstream as white. And the others, because they're not white, they're not mainstream, they're kind of, the way it's often phrased is, I, I'd love to forget about my blackness, but it's everyone else that won't let me. And therefore, I'm going to put this out front, and it's going to be my banner. So it's framed as if it's not so much the community this, themselves that, that are doing this, but that it's more being done to them. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think for that to make sense, it would have to rest on a very high level of racial identification among whites, if that makes sense. Mm. So, I mean, like the, the white category is kind of interesting, but I, I don't I don't think that there's an external goblin or Wizard of Oz behind the scenes controlling society. And that's the sense that I often get from Hotep or social justice warrior thinkers just as it is from alt-right types that seem to think it's like the Yahoo or something. But I mean, the reason that the category of whiteness has expanded to some extent isn't a plot to keep out black people. It's just that internal levels of racism among whites and internal levels of defrance among whites, like the fact that most Sicilian guys spoke another language for the first 40 years they were here, those have faded. So most people will just look at a guy who seems kind of Caucasian and say, well, okay, that's a and Chicago people wouldn't even say whiteness or say that's a Caucasian. You know, like what are you know, Blanco. You know, it's there's and this is recognized by all groups that members of the Caucasian subpopulations who don't have an alternative tribal and linguistic identity just seem like white guys. So you have seen the growth of the white population in the sense of Italians are included, Irishmen are included, Lebanese people are included. Jews are included often. The question, though, is whether that makes people be really passionately Black. And that would make sense if whites were really passionately white, I think. So if every time you met a white guy, they would remind you, well, you're not white. If people were still saying things like, "Can't I'm so glad to be free white in 21. But I honestly don't see that. Like, what I see is a lot of behaviors that developed in the Black community in response to actual like race war level conflict, even the black gangs in many cases and the uh, racialist groups like the Nation of Islam developed in response to violence, whether that was attacks on Southern black neighborhoods, that was stuff in the prison system, so on down the line. And if you've ever seen any of their quote unquote lit, they're pretty explicit about this. But the question is now in 2023, is that necessary? Or are these just sort of pathological problems in the black community now? 
So, I mean, like an extreme sense of racial identity when your old rivals don't feel that anymore or a problem with gangbanging and violence when that developed to resist outside attackers, but where that's now just turned inward and you're extorting from businesses and shooting people in your own group. I mean, it, it's actually really hard to defend that. Like, I think if most black guys were to say, like, you know, hypothetical miracle, like what would happen if all Appalachians study as much as Koreans? Like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's not going to happen. But in that situation, you can usually plot out what would occur. If black people did that, I think white people would be overjoyed. I mean, like if the crime rate in the black community dropped to the white rate, which is still pretty high, um, I think most whites would kind of react by saying, great. And you'd see more integrated neighborhoods. There wouldn't be a, a sense of backlash hostility, at least not in based on any experiences I've had. That's interesting. That sort of speaks to, which is something we'll get into, but the press or oppressed mentality can lead people to either consciously take advantage of this dynamic or to actually believe that there is a an oppression taking place that isn't. And this goes right into the theme of your 2019 book, Hate Crime Hoax. I'd love to hear you talk about that and subtitle, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, in which you look at a data set of 409 allegedly false hate crime allegations, some of which you know people are saying, oh, this... These guys jumped me, they beat me up. Jesse Smollett is a famous case, but there are many others that turned out just absolutely didn't happen. And one question, of course, to think about would be the degree to which these people themselves really believe what they're saying, or if they are just, they're just knowingly taking advantage of a situation in our society. But the other part of this is that the scandals themselves are so explosive when they come out and the correction is never as explosive. And so it almost just, I mean, I, to this day, I run into people who, who will cite some of these scandals, not knowing oh, yeah. that they've since been corrected. That's the really amazing thing about it. No, that that's absolutely right. And young, urban, maybe especially kind of male culture, I mean, that happens all the time. Like Michael Brown, hands up, don't shoot, Covington Catholic. I mean, like things that I have in the book, Jacob Blake, I mean, I have a rapist who got shot, alleged, but who got shot uh, by the police who didn't die, actually. I mean, he was hit two times out of seven rounds. In, in a wheelchair. I don't even know if he's still in a wheelchair, but I mean, that, that story was presented as the near murder of an innocent black man. I mean, the, yes, this, this getting to the point went on quite a lot. So I, I do think that there are two different things going on here. And you, you said this as well. One is that people tend to respond to incentives. And actually this, I remember when I started reading in psych when I was like maybe 15 or 16, and it really shaped my view of conventional morality, which I think is mostly bullshit. There are kind of things an honorable warrior doesn't do or whatever, but most people's behavior in life is just a series of rationalizations of what makes logical sense for them to do. Like there's a book called The Attitudinal Model by the political scientists Siegel and Spade. And they look at the, the models of Supreme Court decision-making that are supposed to govern what justices do. So, for example, most conservative justices say, I am a constitutional originalist. So what I'm going to do in this situation is what the words of the Constitution, like cruel and unusual punishment is banned in this new land or whatever. That, that's a bit of a paraphrase. But what the words of the Constitution themselves would mandate, whereas most liberal justices would say, I am a moral reader I'm going to do what seems most in line with the guiding principles of U.S. and international law generally today, presenting both these very broadly. 
What uh, Siegel and Spaeth found is that if you adjust for a couple of variables, like the political behavior of a justice, you can predict 99% of their decision or something like that. It's like 97. Like all of the, all of the moral stuff just didn't matter. Like if you know, like what the party of the appointing president was for an individual Supreme Court justice, much less if you know anything else, personal opinions, ethnic background, you can predict exactly what they're going to do in every single case. Mm. And this is true for human beings in general. And Siegel and Spaeth actually are kind of generous about this. What they say, and I, I think this is true for moral arguments as well, actually. What they say is that in almost every Supreme Court case, there are legal arguments on either side. So if you're looking at the Dobbs decision that repealed Roe, for example, on the one side, there's Roe versus Wade. There's a stout precedent that says, no, abortion is no kind of murder. Abortion is legal in this country. On the other hand, there are literally dozens of briefs from plaintiffs' organizations across the right arguing the exact opposite, citing cases from major state Supreme Courts, this kind of thing. So you could pretty easily put the names of legal cases in a decision that went either way, if that makes sense. And so judges basically just do what they want. Now, it's reasonably honorable. Like, you actually couldn't, and this might be a definition of pure evil or something, you couldn't do something that had no moral argument on its side, but almost everything, should you let in expensive immigrants or not, in fact, does. So, to some extent, it, first of all, is a statement about life. As long as it's not absolutely abusive to your fellow man, just doing what you want to do, you know, business-wise, sexually in an intimate relationship, as long as everyone consents, pharmaceutically, so on down the line, is probably a good piece of advice about how to live your life. What's mm -hmm. your take on the gym? What field would you rather work in? Because that, that is, in most cases, if you're successful, what you're going to do anyway. But the reason I went through this lengthy ramble about incentives in the social science literature is that, obviously, if you incentivize victimization, more people are going to innovatively identify as victims. So, I mean, this is this is something you're seeing very often. I mean, right now, 25% of young white women identify as LGBT, whatever. And, and it's almost never as a lesbian, for example. It would be as trans but not in need of surgery, non-binary, bisexual while on campus, this kind of thing. And, I mean, a cynic might ask, does this require you to do anything at all? Well, no, not really. I cut my hair short. But people are moving into these categories um, across the board. And I think that the hate crime hoax book was just kind of at one extreme end of this. Years ago, I mean, I became aware that a lot of these very high profile hate incidents, we had about four in a row in Chicago, which I can go into if you want, weren't real. We had a club called Velvet Ultra Lounge that was burnt to the ground. I mean, horrible anti-gay slurs written throughout the place, so on. And this was a national story, made the Wall Street Journal, top first three pages of our Tribune. It turned out the club owner just burned it down for insurance money. Which is, which is not unheard of in Chicago. It would have been the first thing that would have been suspected had it not been for this the tangent that he decided to go off in. But, I mean, that level of power um, influenced the behavior of a lot of other people. So, yeah, the book looks at 400-odd cases like this. Most of the most high-profile hate incidents, I think it's fair to say, mass shootings maybe aside. But of the past 15 years, uh, Covington Catholic, Jussie Smollett, you know, Air Force Academy, where a general went down there to stamp down racial tensions. Kansas State, where there are these slurs being written all over high-end cars. Duke lacrosse. I mean, just on and on and on. Almost all of them turned out to be fakes. So the question is, why? What is, what is that incentive process? And I think I give a pretty good answer to that question. 
I saw a person who had filmed themselves explaining that they uh, they just felt so uncomfortable in their white colonizer skin, and they <laughs> they they sort of come to the conclusion that they want to be trans because they they without actually coming out and saying it, you really get the feeling that they they wanted to have some way in which they were. Um, climbing the oppression ladder in a sense that that they would at least you know okay i'm white but but i'm but i'm trans and so that kind of mitigates it in a sense and and at least i have that and this wasn't someone who they didn't express any good faith type argument of 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 what you would consider you know like a true deep identification as a trans person it was more i feel so terrible being white and they went looking for this other type of identity to embrace another manifestation of this perhaps is uh you see these incentives where i've i've noticed the usage of the word genocide to clickbait your argument in a sense i mean that is a powerful word you see that now with the gaza genocide you see that with the trans genocide you see that with i saw you in a video discussing uh, benjamin krupp's book open season the legalized genocide of color people and this was at a time where I think the the number of unarmed black individuals who were being shot by police was hovering at around 20 per year. Um, mm-hmm. So some of them believe it. Some of them truly, deeply believe it. Some of them, I think, and I, I suspect Karam knows that it, it's just not true. He knows he's, he made a remark in a CBS interview where he said something to the effect of the need to draw attention to an important issue which suggests to me that maybe he knows that that's just a bunch of bullshit when he says it's open season on black people and that it's a genocide, it's a legal genocide. I mean, no, but he understands the power of language and he's willing to use it that way. Even if that means that by using it that way, a lot of other people are going to take him literally, and that's going to have some pretty serious harm downstream, not just the deterioration of the word, which is important, but also people's emotional responses when they feel i mean if you feel that there really is a genocide against your people you're going to behave in in outraged and potentially even violent ways why wouldn't you it would that would be the rational thing to do so this is really uh, dangerous stuff one of the debates i mentioned just now but another one you did you you debated jared taylor mm-hmm. who's an interesting character and you use data to show Jared Taylor being a far-right white supremacist figure. And you use data to show that monoracial societies are not, in fact, more peaceful slash better, superior, what have you. I wanted to ask you, though, does the data therefore suggest the opposite or neither? Does it suggest that multiracial societies are in some way better or that it's really just an aesthetic preference at a certain point? I mean, does Japan have something serious to gain by trying to emulate the American model? Or is it just a, uh, or just a case of, no, these are just two different styles and neither one is better than the other? Yeah, I mean, so Japan is one of the most peaceful, livable, and pleasant countries in the world, and it's a monoracial ethnostate. On the other hand, Congo or the former Yugoslavia would be some of the most violent, least livable places in the world, although the, the countries of the former Yugoslavia are mostly doing well now, although they're still developing. But I mean, in that there are three different races that we're talking about here, so on down the line. So there, there's a particular reason for this. Uh, My own take would be that the data is actually somewhat inconclusive on this point. Hmm. But kind of getting to the point from my end, the argument that diversity is rare, and that racial diversity in particular is what predicts conflict in large countries is just false. I mean, I actually don't think that was one of my better debates. But like that claim is often made on the alt right and in mainstream, even conservative political science, that's considered 
kind of a joke, kind of a foolish argument. Taylor makes some arguments that are, I, I think, more serious. But if you're looking at what uh, what country is diversity rare among large countries? No, I mean, India, Brazil comes to mind, the EU taken as a whole, the USA. I mean, let's not sell ourselves short. We're 60-40. We're the leading nation in the world. Uh, Canada, to some extent, you can go back to ancient imperial Rome, smaller states, Israel, although it's um, the population is largely of Jewish faith, is a very diverse country in reality. It's 21% Arab. The Jewish population includes highly successful groups of Eastern European Jews, Levantine Jews, Ethiopian Jews, uh, Yemeni Jews. So this is this is something that, first of all, is pretty common. The second question is, does it predict conflict? If we're being honest, to some extent, there are slightly decreased down by, if I recall Putnam correctly, about 9% levels of social trust in diverse societies, just like there's slightly higher patent rates. I mean, there's some advantages, some disadvantages. There's more cosmopolitanism, better food. Sounds like a joke. It's pretty important. We eat three times a day, more interesting dating scene, so on down the line. But um, some pluses, some minuses. But what we see when it comes to serious conflict beyond decreased trust is there's a slight effect of diversity, but also the most violent countries in the world almost invariably are monoracial. I mean, you're, when you think of the major genocides, the major conflicts in the recent past, when you're talking about Rwanda, that's an entirely black society conflict that was based on height of all things, Hutu Tutsi violence. You're talking about the former Yugoslavia. I mean, one of the bloodiest such conflicts we've seen in the recent past. The Radna that's composed of Russia and Ukraine, Armenia and Azerbaijan, and even internally. I mean, you go into Central Africa, you'll have states that have sky high murder rates, Latin American par murder rates that are just different black tribes. Latin America itself is composed almost entirely of a mestizo Spanish-speaking population. What you actually find, uh, at, at least from my fairly skillful attempts to unpack this data, is that race is not an especially uh, significant booster of conflict compared to other things like religion. The thing that is, is what you might call tribal diversity, where you have different populations that are part of the same race but that speak different languages, for example, or have some similar conflict of backgrounds. And that's what you get in Africa. That's what you get in Eastern Europe. That's what you get in, to give the archetypal example of this, the Middle East, which is at least through the 80s, 90s, been the world's most violent region. I mean, these people are in most cases all Arabs. So there's some question about why uh, tribal diversity has that effect. My own sort of hypothesis would be that assimilated racial diversity generally exists in large societies that have broken the tribes. So in the USA, all of the different white groups have pretty much come together into white. All of the different black groups have very, to a very large extent, come together into black, African-American, something like that. So you have conflict between these big ass groups. But you also have an assumption that everyone speaks English, has reasonably patriotic attitude toward the country, so on down the line. I would expect incoming Hispanic immigration for the next 20 years, for example, to challenge that in terms of a national sense of patriotism or whatnot, far more than the pre-existing racial diversity we had. But um, large countries that have a diversity of human backgrounds, Malaysia comes to mind, Singapore comes to mind, you could really just keep dropping these. Most Latin American states, Costa Rica, some of those pleasant places in the world, the island paradises, Bermuda, Bahamas, I guess those aren't large countries, but that is not at all a rare model. Positive increase in cosmopolitanism, negative, in negative effect on social trust, 
which do you prefer? It's it's up in the air. It's I think it legitimately is in many cases up to the individual who's looking at different countries. Some people prefer their in group, and some people prefer diversity. Now, one thing I will say that's kind of important here, and last last comment, I promise. But one thing that's kind of important about uh, this, from, speaking from kind of the center right, I don't think either of those perspectives is wrong. So I like diversity. I'm from Chicago, Chicago. I like big cities. Mm-hmm. I like seeing people of different kinds. I like being able to go down the street and go to like a Thai restaurant. On the other hand, I don't think preferring your own in-group, maybe being from an agrarian community, being comfortable with mostly whites or blacks, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that's been kind of shoehorned into the category of racist over the past couple of decades. Mm-hmm. It, it strikes me as that it would be fairly hard to deny that. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think most people, probably a 70% majority, are a bit more comfortable with people from their own background. I don't think anybody thinks there's anything wrong with that, unless there's white people who are thinking that also, and then people think there's something <laughs> wrong with that. But like, if you're Koreans love Koreans and they love Korean culture, and that's a beautiful thing. And I don't really know anybody who has a problem with that, not even Japanese, who maybe historically might, but they love to see it. And it's, you know, in my experience of cultures, it's really primarily in the U.S. with white people where that's considered like an issue. And otherwise, it's exactly what you said. It's like, what's wrong with people, you know, having appreciation or or even pride, which is a loaded word when we're talking about race. But historically, you know, I mean, socially, I'm not saying that a person can't have pride, but uh, it seems to function that way. Okay, so then your 2020 book, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, which I, I see on the shelf behind you. That's an interesting book because that gets into all of the topics that we can't, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there are conversations that it would be good to have, but we can't have. And you essentially just lay out what some of these arguments are, not because they're inaccurate, but because it's um, impolite or politically incorrect. What was the reason that you decided to write that book? Was there one argument that really hit you and then you decided to start making a list or how did that evolve? Well, I mean, it's, it's always funny to say actual author things like, you know, my publisher offered a nice advance. You know, I'd, I'd come out with a book a uh, year before that, almost to the date uh, for Regnery. They were looking for some, I guess, by that point, reasonably well-known authors for the next cycle of books. And so they contacted me and I suggested the breakdown of that book, which is basically that I look at 10 of, at the time, the most high profile news stories specifically those dealing with race and gender and so on, and Mm. see how accurate the public presentation of those stories was. And as you may have guessed, the public presentation of most of those stories was complete bullshit. So the book did pretty well, fairly well reviewed. I was glad glad to have put it out. Uh, And I'll go through a couple of those in a second, but I I do want to respond to your last point briefly. I agree with you. This gets back to the discussion about who's most racist earlier or is racialist behavior treated differently when it's engaged in by members of different groups? I'd agree that everyone accepts that most people want to hang out with their own in-group more than half of the time in every situation, but when whites, maybe especially white identified middle class on up whites, want to do it. I mean, I guess my comment is I just think that's unfair. There, There's really, I mean, maybe as a member of the national majority you should be a little bit more tactful or something, but, you know, many of my black buddies will say, I want to marry a black woman. I love the blondes I've dated and people I've you know, hung out with overseas, but I'd prefer to marry a African-American woman and have kids that I think will have these, you know, personal and athletic and so on interests. And I, and whenever one of my guys says that, you might tease them lightly about racism, but it's generally a, health, it's a healthy thing. Who cares? 
So if a white guy said the same thing, well, I'm Caucasian, I'm Greek-American origins, and I prefer to marry a Caucasian woman, white woman uh, who's Greek. But other than that, you know, Italian, whatever. A white person who shares my background, I don't think that's anything to get mad or irritated about. But I am aware that there are circles within society that would try to rip your nuts off for saying that. Like, what do you mean, you monster? You know, are you hating on our black queens? And so I, I do think that one thing about this conversation, when we talk about, again, honest dialogue on race, dialogue means two tongues. It's people talking. There can't be a system, unless we want a rise of the real alt-right, there can't be a system where minorities can say and do anything and whites can't say and do any of those things. And I think in a lot of arenas like sports, comedy, we've gotten to a pretty healthy level where everyone, you know, the old cliche is makes fun of each other. Everyone points out their group's strengths and weaknesses. But now that seems to be under attack, and it seems to be under attack 90% from one side, at least, i.e., you white guys can't do that. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, that's fair or logical at all. And you do see it in the weirdest situations. Like, again, I was on social media just kidding around the other day, and a friend posted, you know, what do uh, white people do better than black people? And all these people were citing different sports and all this stuff and saying nothing. And um, I wrote underneath it... What, what's up uh colonizing i saw a video where they were like what do white people do well and like over 80 percent of the people in the video were like i don't know stealing other people's land colonizing and this is like the only good thing they could list and i was like i'm pretty sure if you asked a bunch of white people what do you know japanese do well what do black people do well it's going to be a lot of beautiful things it's going to be a lot of complimentary nice things they're going to say they're not going to just say things that if the, and if they did if it was negative people would say that's racist you know yeah if, if you were given that black example and instead of saying you know competing in the olympics gospel music something like that you're like stealing cars everyone would say unless it was a bunch of guys joking around at a gym like you're you're the worst kind of racist yeah. but no i mean and that's that's the same thing like i saw that exact video where people are saying military atrocity and you know, putting jews on trains now because i do come from that integrated kind of hood background and i suspect you have an urban background yourself like i'm not really offended by like some of the comments were funny but again, like, so in this thread on Twitter, I just put take the SAT. I mean, like, there are obvious white advantages over the black community at this point. I mean, you, you guys, quote unquote, are beating us by 120 points on the test. You know, and there are 100 things you could say like that. Stay married. You know, the white divorce rate actually is trash, but the black divorce rate's even worse. You know, when we get married, you know, it's, there, there, there are all these jokes you can make back and forth. Mm -hmm. And there are realities that underlie them. And yeah, you can't have that conversation only in one direction. Mm. And I do think that this is just a one sentence point I made earlier, but the color blindness argument was made to everyone. And it was pretty much picked up only by whites above social class X. And I think a lot of those people are now looking at the national picture and getting kind of irritated. You know, it seems like we agreed to give up that sense of pack cohesion and nobody else did. And it leads to these crazy scenes like 20 guys jumping one guy of a different ethnicity. So you, you can't have that. That's not sustainable. And basically, I just think my honest opinion is that, you know, 27% of marriages are interracial right now. Like you're going to get a diverse group of people who are just going to say, no, those aren't the rules anymore. Because again, all these moral standards, we just made up. Like, I don't see a complete duality in terms of what's acceptable behavior in a country that's half minority and half white. I don't see that being tolerated for very long. Yeah just a silly story but the they were talking about these differing standards and as an editor one of the examples that jumped out at me when i was 
you know, editing articles, it was when the capitalization of black came through the style guides. But then there was the argument that you, you could not, of course, do that for white. And there were some reasonable arguments made as to why and why not. And of course, it wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, the arguments weren't just nonsense, but on the page, it is just kind of funny to see black is capitalized and white is lower. Now, some style guides, I think AP, they were like, okay, well, let's just capitalize racial groups now. And they just went across the board with everybody. But then there were others in the, um, I want to say Chicago. I'm not sure if it's Chicago, but there were others that were like, no, we're going to keep white lowercase. We're going to capitalize every other racial group. So like <laughs> indigenous is capitalized, black is capitalized, Asian is capitalized, white, that's lowercase. And even when I read into the reading, the arguments that they had, I was like, well, I'm trying to be good faith. I'm like, okay, I, I see what, I see the argument they're making, but if I'm a reader and I'm not reading those arguments, I'm just reading the article and I see that and I don't know the reasoning. And even though I do know the reasoning, I don't find that persuasive, but they did have well thought out reasonings. I see that as a reader. I'm like, I mean, that's just alienating and off-putting and going to have, as you alluded, an effect with the, with re regard to the rise of the far right, let's say, that we don't necessarily want to have and we don't necessarily need to be poking people when they think that it does make sense to think somewhat strategically about some of these things. But, you know, it seems as if we're perhaps not moving in that direction and we're not held so much by the weight of truth and fact and reason, which is what your book was about. Look, all these things that, that we should be having serious conversations about that we're just getting not just 10% off, but we're 180 degrees, we're completely have it wrong. Uh, yeah, if you want to list some of them that you found uh, that were your personal pet peeves or that you think were particularly interesting. Yeah, so I mean, well, first of all, like a quick comment on the black-white thing. Like, I personally, I, I may change my capitalization practices just because I never want to look woke. But I mean, in reality, like the American APSA, APSA guidelines have suggested capitalization of black for, if I recall correctly, 20 years. Black, in the sense that people capitalize, refers to an American single ethnic group. So, like, for example, I would capitalize Irishmen or Caucasian mm. or something. White Americans aren't generally considered a single ethnic group because instead of one population like Irish or even two or three that have come together like Black, there are, I think, 91 white groups in the USA. So when you say white, you're referring to this kind of general assigned label when you say black or ADOS, which I sometimes substitute, which is also capitalized, capital A-D-O-S, you're referring to the American descendants of, you know, the battle captive slave population or whatever. And everyone at some level knows this. So for years, I just capitalized black, I capitalized Irish, I wouldn't capitalize white. I don't capitalize brown. And so nobody cared. Like everyone kind of got it. Over the past couple of years, people started doing what you've said, like capitalizing the generic descriptors for every group. It hasn't changed what I do yet, although it might, because just basically because of how it looks, you look kind of racist. Mm -hmm. But this is one of those completely made up racial fights. Like, had it not been for the fact that this became one of a hundred different varieties of woke virtue signaling during kind of the summer of George Floyd, everyone would either just capitalize black and not white or capitalize both. Like there would have been no issue. There was not an issue for the first 15 years of my writing. So I, I personally find this whole thing pretty irritating. And I think part of this is not, not you're bringing it up, but just like the whole debate, because part of it gets into like white guys now are starting. You're seeing the first twinges of racial identification. And part of being really racially identified is feeling victimized by bullshit. 
So you're now seeing white guys calling out like obscure affirmative action policies or like capitalization practices in the social science literature. And it's like, Jesus Christ, shut up. Not you guys too. You know, so it's, you now have this on both sides of the coin. Right. Like who's the real victim? Who's the real leech? You know, I mean, I, I don't really see that as all that productive, but yeah, it's an interesting debate. I may poll on Twitter, actually. How should, how should these be? I, think, I, I agree with you. I think when it's when it's referring to a specific group, as you said, then it does make sense. Uh, but I've seen it just as a just as the general descriptor too. And I, I think maybe they're just people. Maybe just saw other people doing it and started to copy it without understanding the the reasoning. And they're like, people "Oh, are also- it's just for black. Then we're just going to capitalize black." And that's fine. But I would expect more from, let's say, people putting out style guides. One but- thing to understand, also, and I'm sure you do, is that a lot of woke people are dumb. I mean, we've had about 60 years now of affirmative action, which is about 150-point SAT boost. And that's also combined, we also forget this, with legacy programs for these rich idiots. Like most of the blue hairs at Barnard or something like that are not perhaps the best merit scholars in the country, very likely to come from well-off families, very likely to enter into nonsense fields like gender studies. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons that they're on that campus. So between those two groups, and you've also got 15% athletes in most D1 colleges, you have a lot of people that get out with the Big Ten or even Ivy sheepskin that don't really know what they're doing. Mm. And I mean, even in this silly context, that's how you get things like capitalized B-L-A-C-K Africa or debates about crayons in Spanish being labeled with the color negro, which means black in Espanol, but which a lot of people don't know because their IQ is 98. So a lot of these conversations just come down to people being kind of stupid. I mean, like, I'm not going to call it any individual scholar. I have 10 times already, and everyone I might be thinking of has rejected my debate offer. But I mean, like, this whole idea that every gap between groups comes down to either racism or genetics is just insanely dumb. This is a perspective someone has if they don't know how to run a regression model. Like, Mm. or just to add up four different columns of shit on a paper. What about geography what about luck what about i mean there's there's you don't have to be that creative or i think you don't i want to say you don't have to be that smart either to come up with some other explanations other than racist policy or like genetic inferiority (laughs) but but that that is actually like the two options that are that are presented to us by certain quote-unquote public intellectuals who are thought leaders on race in america and that can't possibly be a serious conversation, but it seems to be the dominant conversation. Yeah. And it's actually, I mean, it's actually fairly embarrassing, especially as a black scholar. I mean, but like just, so another example, even beyond things. So yeah, the, the old cliche, and I think anthropology is that there are the possible explainers for group gaps include culture, region, geography. I mean, you knocked out a couple of these just right off the bat thinking about it but potentially genetics, current prejudice, past prejudice, trading behavior. I mean, they're just all of these different. The one that I usually begin a debate with is that the most common age for a black man in the USA, it's totally fair to call it the modal average, is 27. White guy is 58. Uh, Even the mean gap is like 10 or 12 years. So if you take a guy that's between 12 and 30 years older than his rival, it's just meaningless to compare them unless you adjust in terms of crime rates on the right or income on the left. Of course, the 58-year-old guy is going to have far more wealth than the 27-year-old guy. But if you try to pin down, I'll toss out Ibram Kendi here, if you try to pin someone down and say, well, what about this? Like, what about the fact 
that 55% of all the black people live in the South, where they perform almost exactly as well as Appalachian whites, and only 15% of the whites live in the South, and that explains half the gap, or whatever it is that year. I mean, there's just nothing. There's just no response. It's like, well, why do you think that black migration patterns were confined to the... It's, yeah. Any possible excuse you could make is made, and you just move back to its racism. Like, their response would actually be that every one of these gaps must be caused by racism of some subtle kind. Why do black people feel the despairing need to have children early? I mean, it's... Um, I was talking to uh, uh, someone who is uh, supportive of DEI, and they were saying that, you know, we have to, we should see the in the C-suite leadership of corporations, we should see something that's reflective of society. So there's 12%, let's say, blacks in the population. We should see 12% leadership, at least in the corporate world. And I said, what percentage of that 12% are children? Yeah. Like, what are you talking <laughs> yes. about? Not everybody who's black is ready to be a CEO or Asian or white or whatever, or qualified or has a degree yes. or is a good leader or a team player. Or, I mean, when you start cutting through, I think you recently wrote about this, something to the effect of if we were going to have uh, someone in, a, in an elite position, by the time you cut through all of the requirements that you would need, you're looking at like what, one or 2%, right? People don't think yeah. of it that way, unfortunately. They don't seem to have the training, perhaps or just the IQ. Speaking of which, you are very active on uh, X and I enjoy reading your commentary. It's, uh, it's funny, it's witty, it's sharp. It's also, you stray into areas where you could imagine someone would get canceled for just saying things that you're like, you know, you wrote the book on, on the 10 things you're not supposed to say, and you say the things you're not supposed to say, and you're saying them because you, you know what you're talking about and you can back it up, but you're still saying these things. So I, I see these things sometimes I have to wonder, like, um, how do you get away with it? <laughs> I mean, are you, uh, is it tenure? Is it that uh, Kentucky, I know Kentucky is fairly anti-woke as a, as a state, right? Is it the political atmosphere that you're operating in? Or do you not simply not care and you're going to say what you're going to say? And No, I mean, I, I sincerely hope I don't get fired. I mean, that would require an entirely new financial strategy where I set up a sub stack and did all this kind of damn thing and wrote like an essay every day and all that. But I mean, I, I enjoy my job. I like teaching. I actually think, I mean, I teach at a historically black college in Appalachia, so I get a good chance to genuinely help people. I mean, I've sent a bunch of people from both the Eidos group and Appalachian kind of mountain kids to like good law schools. I mean, I did uh, four law school references this year, all the top institutions. So like, that feels good. I, I'd rather not get fired. Um, I think like, so when you brought up like race and IQ briefly there, I mean, I think to some extent, well, one, I have tenure. I'm pretty productive. I mean, like, I'm probably one of the best known two or three people at my institution, solid state U, but fairly small. Uh, I mean, I think there, you know, I've probably some allies. I've met with the congressmen in my region of, you know, Kentucky and so on down the line. Not the school would be intimidated by that or anything. But I mean, so there, there's some protections there. You know, I did pretty well in the market and in business before this. I'm not immediately worried about starving if I if I do get fired. I still might negotiate a year or two salary, something like that. But um, so there's some protections there. But also with a lot of those things like race and IQ, I think part of what helps is that I'm actually like, I'm pretty edgy and funny, but I'm not actually a bigot at all. Um, like my take on race and IQ is pretty much what you call culturalism. Like, I mean, the, I don't view the idea that there are some say 8% genetic gaps between groups. If you get cut down to everything is evil, but I'm, I'm very far from sure there are. I mean, like if you look at um, just one example, cause this is a huge sideline. I've done a whole podcast on this. Not that I'm the world's greatest expert, but I mean, like, 
the IQ of Nigeria when Lynn and Von Hanen went around the world and measured these was 69. If you go to the site Brain Stats today, it's 84, 85. Uh, the IQ for Nigerians in the West is well as anyone can measure this from what I've seen. China Chisala, so it's like 104. So I, I think it's really unlikely there's been some kind of genetic shift that moved this group from a 69 to 104 in 30 years. So that implies like some pretty obvious things probably are true. Like if you do what Nigerian and Asian immigrants do in the USA and study three hours a day for tests, you're probably going to be pretty good at tests. That, that might have less effect on some full-scale IQ boards, but on the SAT, you're going to be knocking out that 1,300. The Asian average is 1,240 or something like that. So that, that's pretty much my take. And I'm thinking back to like high school sport, college sports. I mean, you know, like I used to be able to run my best sport, actually. It wasn't any kind of like Friday night light stuff. My best sport is middle distance running. This is like hmm. 50 pounds ago. What and I mean, like I wasn't. What was your distance? Well, I ran uh, three miles for cross country in the fall and I ran track in the spring. So I was an 800 meter man. I was. Uh, yeah, I did cross country and track. Yeah. Nice. You look like a runner. I don't look like a runner anymore, but I, you know, I kept ahead. <laughs> But basically, the like when you think about some of that stuff, like I wasn't extraordinarily good. I could have gone to like a D three school and run, but I went to like schools like Illinois instead. I was like, put me on that huge campus, you know, let me learn mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. But you know, anyone who's on a men's varsity team can run generally under six, certainly for three miles straight, considerably more than that in some cases, and that's just expected. That's like a light practice, or that's the race. So when you look at group differences, I mean, for example, all of the best marathon runners in the world right now are uh, Kenyan, Ethiopian, or Somali. But the differences between them and the very best white or East Asian runners is like a minute, 37 seconds, I think, something like that. Hmm. The white record is two hours, four minutes, 50 seconds. By the way, these are incredible times for anyone that doesn't know yeah. anything about the sport of competitive running. I mean, that's a 26-mile race. That guy's doing it two hours. But that, I think, is what you'd actually see if all groups were kind of given the exact same diet level of training. So on, when it came to IQ and most other behaviors, like you might have a difference between 201.58 and 204.50, which is significant in the race. But when you say like the IQ for Malawi or something's 59, that's, that's just bullshit. So I, I don't think anyone really has a problem with that take. If I were to say... No, no, it is all hereditary. It is all hereditary. I, I do think people have more beef with that. I'm with you on that. But what I was trying to get at is I like seeing, uh, well, first of all, I, I like a lot of your takes. I just agree with you. And I think you sometimes, you often have a way of presenting it in a way that makes me laugh. So that's great. But I also just like the fact that you're out there, you're able to be out there where you have people that are expressing, you know, informed and witty comments. There should be more of that. And whether or not you're a bigot, unfortunately, I think is not entirely relevant because there's just so many people that do get canceled who are not. And they're accused of things that they're not. And we have, you know, this is obviously part of cancel culture. It's not so much what you think in your heart of hearts. It's whatever your words can be stretched or clipped to look like you were saying, even if you weren't saying it. Some people have chosen to deal with this by just not saying anything that could ever potentially be taken the wrong way. You don't seem to have taken that approach. You'll say what you want to say. You, you know, what I'm trying to say is I don't think that not being a bigot would necessarily save these individuals that I'm thinking of. It's either, it's either a kind of courage or a security or, or just a, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to express myself. I'm just curious. 
Well, I think I'm a reasonably brave person. I think I do have some protections in the sense of money, tenure, that kind of thing. Mm. I also think that to some extent, once you break through to that point where you gain allies and so on, it you are more protected. So mm. like the period where most people would threaten me on Twitter and Facebook was when I had maybe like 5,000 Twitter followers and 2,000 Facebook followers and people would be aware of me, but I was kind of a little guy and they would DM me and say things like, you don't want me to send this to your employer. Now, I mean, like across social media, probably just Twitter is 109,000 or something like that. So, I mean, at a certain level, if I just asked everyone on Twitter, because I have engagement with about half my page to send me $2, I would maintain something reasonably close to my current income for a year or two before even adding in a settlement or something like that. So I think there is less worry in that situation. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if I was involved in some kind of collegiate lawsuit, I assume like Chris Rufo, James Lindsay, like people I'm casual friends with, who I've helped out on occasion would probably jump in. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone necessarily, I don't think like a particular higher ed official in Kentucky really wants to bring that on themselves for no reason. Because it's not like I'm saying things like, I hate black people. Like if people dislike my dating takes or something, like is that worth like a three month right. fight with guys popping up on fox news wearing buttons with my face on i don't know i mean there's, so I, a, I, there's an example and i don't know if, if i heard it from you but i heard it recently where somebody he said tomorrow i'm going to go on campus and i'm going to shoot everyone a smile oh yeah yeah right and then somebody took that and they just cut off the smile part or i'm going to shoot every black person a smile sorry and then they and then they cut off the smile part and then they were like look at this and the guy was under investigation and you don't my point is you don't have to say anything offensive at all to for people to so but what you're seem to be suggesting is there's a certain point of well there's tenure there's your bravery but then there's also a kind of like too big to be canceled is that well i don't think i'm too big to be canceled i mean like you know claudine gay got canceled somewhat deservedly i mean it it would depend on what like i personally think if alex so if allegations of some kind came forward at this time like I i don't even know what these would be at this point in my life but i mean you know, I think a lot of people would support me. Like, I seem to pretty clearly be a decent guy. I mean, you know, he said, what on Twitter? Do I care? Mm. I, so I think, one, there are some protections. Tenure is fairly hard to to void in contractual terms. I also have a good relationship with my school. I want to, Kentucky State's a solid school, not hyper woke. I mean, you know, a lot of, I mean, I assume the faculty are mostly African-American Democrats, but I mean, the focus is really getting kids out in our core fields, criminal justice, things like nursing. I mean, so I would say that when you talk about, when you talk about the campus environment in the United States, just a quick sideline sentence, I think we're very often distracted by these kind of bespoke colleges that no one goes to. Hmm. So, I mean, it's like, what are they rioting at Oberlin again, which seems very unimpressive in danger terms, but whatever. I mean, if you look at any of the state universities, especially the regional states, Southern mm-hmm. Illinois, you look at the military academies, you look at all the A&Ms, the historically black colleges, the community colleges, like some guy that's teaching political science at the 91st ranked college in the country is is probably not going to be, and I, that's not the current ranking for Cassie, I'm just saying, but it's probably not going to be like the target of a mob. He's probably going to get along fine with a mixed group of Democrats and Republicans who golf every Thursday, Mm. you know, so there are some protections. There's also that reality. Not everything is what we see on television. And yeah, I mean, I I do think having some level of prominence is uh, useful there. 
because it brings in allies as well as opponents. And it also brings up the probability that like you would respond to someone who unprovokedly attacked you. Like I've made fun of Claudine Gay, but other than that, like when I read liberal journalist takes on my books or something like that, I don't highlight them on Twitter and say like, you know, take down this person uh, as Jordan Peterson is once alleged to have done. So I don't, I don't really try to go out there and quote unquote start beef. But I mean, if someone, if someone did bring that to the table, I mean, I would, I would definitely respond like the, the allegations of like, looks like you cribbed this paragraph from somewhere you could make against pretty much anyone. Mm. Like I actually have professional access to turn it in. And I recently thought about running like 10 famous papers on the left and the right through the website and just seeing how common Claudine gay style plagiarism is. And then I was like, what the fuck would I do that for? Excuse me. I mean, like you'd probably find it in four of them. Then what do you do? Just you know, fight with your new enemies for four months while you don't publish anything? So it, it struck me as a useless thing to do. But I would I would not be surprised at all if some researcher on the right pays five thousand or whatever it is to get a professional level membership just for his group and just starts running him through. Like, well, what's you know, what the sixteen nineteen project? How does that work out and so on? So that'll mm. be interesting to watch. That would be interesting. Recently read your piece in commentary: What Free Palestine and Black Lives Matter have in common. That was good. You, uh, your argument is that, uh, at least to a degree, that there's an oppressor-oppressed narrative that prevents real and much-needed progress for both of these communities. I felt as if you boil it down to bad leadership in both cases. And I wanted to ask you, is it bad leadership or is bad leadership a product of a cultural problem? I think that that's the case when it comes to Palestine. I think that there's, I think that if you remove Hamas, you're going to get another Hamas within six months. But I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah. So what I said, I wrote an article for commentary, which is a monthly review, mostly focused on Jewish, American and world issues. And I talked, although they write about a range of things, but I talked about the parallels that I see between Black Lives Matter and kind of the post 1980s, post widespread real racism, American civil rights movement and the Palestinian cause. And what I said was that in both cases, kind of good faith liberals tend to assume that the problem for the quote unquote victim group is external oppressive, oppressor level repression. So the problem in the black community, what's ultimately causal for all those shootings and so on is white racism somehow. Mm -hmm. And in Palestine, similarly, like what's ultimately causal for low levels of income in the Gaza Strip, for example, is the Israeli blockade. And what I say is that that's not really true at all. And in fact, I think your modeling is at least as accurate as mine. So if you combine them, there are a series of issues within the population, many of which, of course, of course, date to the past, but that have resulted in the creation of a leadership team that's really not able to be productive. Most of the historical Black leadership, if you look at BLM, certainly, but also if you go back to National Action Network, Rainbow Push, has been totally focused on this kind of Ken DeAngelist idea of deep root causes, I believe is you know, Mr. Sharpton's phrase. But so the idea is like to prevent gang violence, we can't just ask for more black cops who will lock up bloods. No, that's too simple. What we need to do is change the heart and soul of every white man and by extension, every black man in the country. By the way, leftists are prone to these utopian ideas that would be more moral than our ideas if they were possible. But like that, that's not like you can't make everyone in the world not racist. You can lock up the 20 worst thugs in your community. But so you have this useless leadership team that's promoting these negative, destructive ideas. And I couldn't help but notice that in Palestine, I mean, the government of Gaza is Hamas. 
you know what I mean? You've, you've pointed out that their next government would probably be about as bad, but like it, it's rare. It's bizarre how rarely that's mentioned. I mean, the government of the region is a terrorist group that's stolen so far about $25 billion in aid that was intended for Gaza. There are only 2.5 million Gazans. I mean, over a period of maybe three to four years, that's $10,000 a piece. The annual income's 4,000. So, I mean, it, it's just, this is obviously the primary problem in the region. The blockade is also caused by this fact, by the way. I mean, Hamas has attacked Israel with medium-range missiles about 10,000 times in the past decade. So no country is going to allow a threat like this, an active threat on its borders. If you are able to remove that leadership team and replace it with a functional leadership team in either case, you could see massive progress made very quickly. What you're pointing out, though, is that a lot of the people, so you have a two-part problem, a lot of the people don't want that. And this is one of the things when people keep saying, keep saying, well, Israel's engaged in genocidal behavior, they're bombing schools. The reason they're bombing the bleeping schools is that Hamas is based in them. Like when Israeli troops actually fought through a gun battle with Hamas's, one of Hamas's more elite companies, by the way, they were shooting back and forth, it went on for two days. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if people thought doctors were fighting the IDF off for that period of time or something like that. But when they actually fought through this other army and got to Al-Shifa, the main hospital in Gaza, I mean, they had exaggerated a little bit about what would what would be found. But there was a network of tunnels under the building. There were rockets under things like spare baby carriages. There's a hostage containment unit in there where it looked like some of the hostages from the music festival had been kept. You found things like pacifiers, underwear, so on in the room. So, I mean... The obvious problem is being completely ignored because the narrative mandates the discussion of this broader issue that's barely related to day-to-day -day conditions. I think that's, that's the parallel between the two situations. Mm -hmm. If racism were to end tomorrow, because 40% of Americans are minorities and only about 6% of the whites are genuine racists, if racism were to end tomorrow, virtually none of the problems of inner city black ghettos would change at all. And I think this is something that every intelligent person kind of knows. Like, why would why would the dope man suddenly get off the corner if Caucasians became 10% less racist? What would, what would the causal structure there look like? You're just not supposed to say that. And same thing, free Palestine. Well, okay, if we free them, what are they going to do? And the obvious answer is start another war with Israel. Like, right. if the blockade were removed tomorrow, if all sanctions, national and international, Israeli and international, were removed from Hamas, which is unlikely because Hamas is a literal fucking terrorist group recognized by the UN, but anyway, let's pretend. But if we were to do all that, then all that would happen is that there'd be another brutal attack. There'd be another October 7th. Israel would fight back and you'd have another big war. So th that's the parallel that I see. The, the thing mm -hmm. that is almost universally described as the problem just isn't the problem. This goes back to one of the things in your book, one of the 10 things you can't talk about. You were talking about it uh, with regard to SAT scores, that it's not racism, it's culture. I think that's one of the things you can't talk about when it comes to Gaza, is that the problem we have here is not, it's not that Israelis are, are genocidal racists. It's uh, Palestinian culture is, uh, you know, that they, yeah, the Hamas won and took power, but after they were elected by the people. And, and when they do polls, right, like they still would elect them again. In fact, there was a recent poll asking them what they thought of October 7th and like 72% were like, well, that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like Hamas, when people say, well, Hamas hasn't been elected for decades, first of all, it's like one to two decades. The last election was, I believe, 2007. Hamas won by a significant majority. There have been regional elections since then. Hamas mm -hmm. has won by a significant majority. 
support for Hamas in Gaza, last I looked, was, you said 72%. It was right around yeah. 69 70%. So, I mean, Hamas is the elected government of the Gaza Strip, the elected, popularly supported government. And that's another one of the things that's really tough to get into. But, I mean, like, the civilian combatant distinction in Gaza is is pretty difficult to parse out, just like it was for us in Vietnam. I mean, many of the hostages that are being held in Gaza are being held by, quote-unquote, Gazan civilians. I get the impression that in terms of the attractive young women, Hamas doesn't know where some of them are. Like, so there have been, Israel's proposed sort of, you know, we'll at least go to the table if all the hostages come back, both sides set down the arms now. The responses from Hamas indicate that they can't get some of them. Like, mm. some of them seem to have been traded. And I mean, think about how Comanche raidish this is. Um, I, I've only seen kind of pundits on the edge, right? Like, Steve Saylor used that description. But this is very reminiscent of an Indian raid. Like, they literally went in there, stole women, you know, counted coup, cut off heads. But, I mean, at any rate, I don't think that they can get all the hostages back because so many of them are under civilian control or are currently being held by other terrorist groups that just seem to exist in the same community, like Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So the idea that Israel should be very narrowly targeted on certain commanders or something when it comes to their revenge is pretty implausible. Like a lot of their people are just held by members of the general population. A lot of the people that broke into Israel and committed the worst atrocities were just young male fighters, members of the general population. The schools and the hospitals all have bombs in them. So what do you do in that situation? I mean, the, the answer for almost all of human history would be annihilate every male fighting, destroy every building over two stories, do whatever is necessary to make peace. There's a famous Roman line about that. Uh, I had to make a desert, but now there is peace. So will Israel do all that? Probably not under modern regulations, but I don't think most humans would be all that horrified if they did. Um, but that's the situation. How do you How do you fix that? How do you repair it? I wrote a post this week in which I basically just went back and looked at the uh, the acceptable loss collateral death calculations for previous wars. And mm -hmm. and I tried to pick ones that people generally would agree are pretty black and white. You know, World War Two, the U.S. going in and Dresden being a famous example, the bombing of Dresden. You know, what do we generally accept as an OK level of civilian death? And Israel is well behind that line but the rhetoric is that it's genocide and they've gone way past that line and i just can't help but think of um the uh, political commentator natan sharansky and he has the 3d model for when is your anti-zionism anti-semitism well it's <laughs> usually when you're having you're holding israel to a radically different standard uh, which seems to be what's happening right now at the current kill ratio they would wipe out approximately eighty thousand gazans and there would no longer be any hamas because there's like 20,000 Hamas members and they've killed 22,000 Gazans, according to Hamas figures, by the way, important to point out. But anyway, 80,000 to entirely wipe out an enemy. It's very, very low by historical standards, but uh, that's not yeah. what the conversation is right now. So, okay, final question. With regard to this, the rhetoric, which you've written about in your books and you're sorting through it online when you're, when you're making these commentaries, often it's uh, sort of a, a fact check on people who are getting the rhetoric wrong. Uh, how do we fix this problem of whether you want to identify it as woke progressive idiocy or just poor education of the public? Like what? 
Is there a fix? Is it got to get worse before it gets better? Is there no solution? Do we just have to pull the rot out from our schools and teach the next generation better? I mean, we find ourselves in a place where not only are we having dumb debates, as you said earlier, but so many of us don't even know what we're debating or how to go about it. Can we climb out of this and what's the fix? Yeah, I, I think we can. I mean, the USA has gone through phases like this before. I mean, we went through a period of ridiculously jingo education that actually was more than a bit racist in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, we were really pushed out of that by the space race. I mean, you can't just keep waving flags and saying prayers and shit if you have to beat the Russians to Mars. You know, so, I mean, then we really boosted science education. I mean, in the 1990s, actually, a lot of past examples involved the right, right? I mean, in the 1990s, you had the big debate about whether we should teach creationism in the schools. And we forget this right now because the left is currently ascendant. And the things they're saying, like some women have nine inch penises, strike most people as just so objectively, partially crazy. But I mean, the right played the same role for most in American thinkers 25 years ago. This is what led to new atheism, what led to the later waves of feminism for good and ill, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, you had Tipper Gore teaming up with Pat Robertson to try to censor metal bands who at the time weren't even cursing. You know, you had the idea silver ring thing. The only thing taught about sex in school should be abstinence. And I mean people had to unify together, both in those rather extreme movements that I've mentioned on the center left, but also just ordinary citizens running for school board and so on to take creationism, intelligent design, abstinence-only education, all this stuff out of the curriculum, Bible class, you can't have the Ten Commandments in front of your school. I mean, so that was a major successful movement on the part of the citizenry. And now we're going to have to do the same thing from kind of the center right or the right. Um, so yeah, I think it can be successful the reason for this is actually fairly simple. Like most successful movements are based around supporting something that is true or at least highly arguable. And when what your opponents believe is in fact nonsensical, your movement has that giant base of support that President Nixon once called the true silent majority. So, I mean, for example, with the trans question, and I have no problem with people struggling with mental issues. If you're an adult, you can dress as you want and so on. But there obviously are two biological sexes. It's quite clear to anyone who's ever been on several dates with someone what they are, you know? So, I mean, like all of this, I, I posted a question on social media once with a link to survey monkey. It was an actual reasonably well done survey question. And I asked how many of you believe that someone with a penis can in any real way be a woman? The phrasing was something like that. And I expected, because I have kind of a bro -y audience, but you know, everyone's feminist girlfriend from that audience follows me too. I expected about 30%. Yes, you can. And the actual response, when you open up the document, you see this totally anonymous survey was 98%, no, that can't happen. 2%, yes, it can't happen. And many people kind of added notes, like I'm, I don't want to abuse anyone. Sure, behave as you want in public. I might even use your pronouns. But just like, can you become a woman if you are a full-on non-DSD man with a penis, testicles, an XY chromosomal order? Everybody said no. And I think that in most of these cases, is your middle-class black buddy oppressed? Is biological sex a hard thing to define? Is mass unvetted migration from third world countries good for the country? Everyone knows what the answer is. So the question is just how do you rally people together? Like, for example, is, is your SAT score just a racist proxy that means nothing when we're hiring, you know, potential physicists? Everyone knows these claims are bullshit. So it's just a matter of kind of rallying people together saying that publicly we've done it before against the left and the right and yeah i think i think we'll do it again
Mm. So I, I'm not really all that worried. Um, and you're starting to see the the rallying now. I mean, like Chris Ruffo and all those guys. Uh, I actually went to a retreat uh, a couple of years ago with a bunch of people, James Lindsay, uh, Melissa Chen, where we talked about how to organize politically to respond to this stuff. And I mean, one of the things someone mentioned was that you could set up colleges like you, Austin, Elon Musk's proposed university, what's happening in some of the traditional conservative colleges like Hillsdale, so on down the line. You could set up alternatives and they would immediately become very popular because people are so sick of this. And you're now you're now seeing that happen. So you're going to see scholars from those places, you know, attending the conferences, responding, at very least accessing that giant conservative media that now exists to respond. It's it's still a danger. But yeah, I, I think the fact that most people know what reality is, I'll, I'll shout out FAIR. They've had some issues, but Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, tens of thousands of members, um, you know, FAIR in medicine, challenging some of the gender stuff, gen spec. It, it took a while for people to come online and respond, just like it did against the extreme right. But once that happens, I can't help but think most people are going to say like, no, I, I just don't think that Robin D'Angelo is one of the smartest people in the country. Like, I'm just not going to agree with this. And that that's going to be a movement that's, that's going to be hard to overcome. Okay, that sounds uplifting. But does that mean that we're moving in a direction where we're going to potentially have red and blue universities? Well, that's a worry. I mean, I, I think that the issue is, well, first of all, that would be an improvement over what we have now, because right now we only have blue universities. Hmm. I mean, so this is one of the things that, you know, K, the K states, the the regional flagships, I mean, they're doing okay. But I mean, obviously, we're doing far better than that. And people should definitely come attend. But I mean, like, in general, the, the state use and so on are doing fine. But the major, you know, Harvard, Penn, MIT, this kind of thing, U Chicago, although that one's a bit of an outlier. I mean, if you actually look at the faculty, Harvard, the last time they polled, their faculty was 1.46% conservative and centrist. And the rest, I mean, I would imagine would be liberal, very liberal and leftist. So that's already what, what you're dealing with. I mean, there are fields like sociology where registered Democrats, not even liberals in some vague sense, but registered Dems and Greens outnumber registered Republicans, you know, 105 to 1. So, I mean, if there are some colleges like U Austin or Hillsdale, where it's like, okay, it's going to be three to one conservative, um, that actually is far less biased than than what we're seeing currently. So I, I don't really think there's even that much of a problem with that. We have uh, red universities, Brigham Young and so on. They're just, they've been rendered extreme outliers by the passage of time. And, you know, if 15 more enter the scene, I, I see that as a good thing. I think you'd start seeing papers challenging some of these absolutely conventional crazy ideas, you know, even to set up a professional organization, you know, every professional organization in the country thinks that the transitioning of seven-year-old children is a good idea. Well, you know, not the Southern Association of High-Ranked Christian Schools, you know, it gives you the ability to cite something to respond to mm -hmm. prominent nonsense for people to whom that matters. Like, Last comment, but Colin Wright and Heather Hying, just with a very prestigious book uh, publisher, new book that's coming out, wrote a scientific chapter on how sex is real. And I know both of them. They both thought it was kind of a joke, right? But it's like, why would we have to do this? Why do we have to defend this? But they laid out all of the quote unquote evidence. And now, as I understand, some reviewers are declaring the debate over. Sex has been proven. So the idea of getting into these institutions forming professional groups for these institutions and responding in the public discourse. I mean, I, I think that is a good idea. That reminds me of a study I saw recently where a guy, I can't remember the university, but he, the study was quite simple and it was just showing that, you know, 
there are some athletic advantages to being a biological <laughs> male. And when I first saw the study, I just kind of rolled my eyes like, are you serious? You, you spent time showing this? But then I thought, actually, in the moment in which we are now, this might actually be a useful study to have. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do actually need to have these studies coming out showing that, yes, indeed, it sort of feels like reinventing the wheel, but maybe we do need a little bit of that, in fact, to say, yes, here's a study. And in fact, if you're a, an Olympic weightlifter and you're a biological male, there is going to be an advantage. I suppose I wish we didn't have to do that, but it's better to have a study than to sit around and, and you know. Anyway, excellent point. And thank you. That is a hopeful note to end on. Thank you for your time. Oh. And I hope everyone goes and checks out Taboo. And your upcoming book, when will it be released? Well, that actually, um, it looks like it's coming out late next spring, which is uh, actually a bit of a surprise. It was originally, some of this may be due to my um, did, deadline missing or something, but we were initially going to drop it before Christmas. Books tend to publish in one of two or three cycles per year. So we're now talking about late next spring, early next summer. But if you go to Amazon, you can see the latest date up for lies, my liberal teacher told me. The name being a response to lies my teacher told me, which is actually a famous book criticizing that that jingo education of an earlier America. And the point of this book is just like, well, for the past 50 or 60 years, exactly the opposite people have been in charge. I mean, we talked about that one right wing attempt to break out in the 90s. But we've been the schools have leaned toward the left in most states since 1960, the hippie movement. So are the things that we're teaching now, like Native Americans were naturally peaceful people. The Red Scare was made up out of whole cloth. Our slavery was kind of this unique American original sin. Is that real? And uh, the answer, you can probably guess to all three of those questions. But uh, I certainly encourage people to check it out. And that will be out uh, at the very least, at very latest uh, next year. Can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you so much for your time, sir.